Best Rest Products is where the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists comes from. It's called the Cycle Pump, made in the USA, has lifetime warranty. They also distribute the Google Tech filters for North America. The website, cyclepump.com. That's Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. According to a UK study, 25% of motorcyclists are wearing the wrong size helmet, and that mistake could be devastating in a crash. Let's face it, with all the choices us riders have out there, choosing a helmet becomes a daunting task. So it's important to understand not only what's at stake when shopping for a new dome, but also what really matters, and most importantly, how to make sure you get the correct fit. Today, we have the chief engineer from the Snell Foundation, which is arguably the world's most respected testing body for helmet safety for motorcycles. And we also have Clinton Smout, an instructor that teaches the helmet routine to 4,000 students each year. And we're going to get some great questions answered here, like, is my helmet garbage if I drop it off the table? As well, does an expensive helmet offer better crash protection than an inexpensive helmet? All this and much more coming up. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Okay, before we get going, I want to thank some sponsors that helped bring this episode of Adventure Rider Radio to you. The first one is Max BMW Motorcycles. They've been doing it since 2002. That's outfitting adventure riders. And they have got a load, I mean the full load of parts and accessories online that they can ship to your door. You order online. It's a great way to get your parts. MaxBMW.com. Get their e-rider newsletter. It's free. MaxBMW.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear, making American-made heavy-duty innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using the strapping system. Um, great systems. matter of fact, all the stuff they make is super tough. I've tried tons of it myself. The website, greenchiliadv.com. That's greenchiliadv.com. Well, you know, it's not even guesswork. It's a proven fact that you will get more miles from your chain by oiling it regularly. Here's what you got to look at. The MotoBreeze chain oiler. It's got no moving parts, got no electrical parts. It runs off of air pressure and it's got vacuum connections that take the oil down and deposit it onto a felt pad that goes directly onto your chain. An ounce of oil gets you a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers. MotoBreeze.com. There's two eyes in there. MotoBreeze.com. Helmets appear to be some of the earliest protective gear made by humans, showing up in early as 900 BC as bronze helmets to protect the head from blunt objects. And we complain about the weight of our helmets sometimes. Most uh, recognize the death of T.E. Lawrence, known as the Lawrence of Arabia, as being a major catalyst towards motorcycle helmet research. T. Lawrence was a well-known army officer in the First World War, as well as a famous writer. He managed to get his experiences in life down on paper in a great way that entertained a lot of people. He crashed his bruff superior and later died from his injuries. And the neurosurgeon that was looking after him, uh, a doctor named Dr. Hugh Cairns, originally from Australia, as a matter of fact, 
Karen's had, had already been dealing with dispatch riders coming in with head injuries from uh, motorcycle accidents. But it was T. Lawrence's death that really deeply affected Dr. Cairns, and it led him to doing a long study into the causes of head injuries, which eventually led to crash helmet use in motorcyclists. Now, before that 1935 crash and the death of T. Lawrence, according to a 1922 article in Motorcycle Magazine, there was a medical officer named Dr. Eric Gardner who came up with an idea for a helmet made of canvas covered with shellac to be stiff enough to withstand abuse. Uh, He took these helmets to the Isle of Man TT in 1914, where I think very reluctantly a lot of riders wore them. And in a race that normally saw a number of concussions, that 1914 race had none. So direct feedback that the uh, helmet was effective, at least to some degree, in protecting them somewhat. Nowadays, we have a number of testing organizations, depending on where you live, that certify helmets according to their ability to protect us in a crash. In the U.S. and Canada, we have two certifying bodies. The DOT, which is Department of Transportation, that's the U.S. Department of Transportation, and Snell. Snell is the certifying body that is almost universally accepted in the racing scene for cars and motorcycles around the world. So we went to Snell to talk to them about helmets. And in this conversation are some points that may go against what you've heard or read elsewhere. Now, Ed Becker is the man behind the scenes of the California-based Snell organization. I'm uh, Ed Becker. I'm uh, actually from uh, New York, uh, out on Long Island. And uh, but I'm, uh, I work for the Snell Foundation. I uh, am the executive director slash chief engineer. Uh, and I've been doing this for about uh, getting on to 30 years now. Ed, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. So Snell, let's talk a bit about first, what, what is Snell? Uh, actually, Pete Snell was an amateur auto racer back in the, the 1950s. He died in a uh, rollover uh, accident at an amateur racetrack here in California in 1956. And he uh, died of of head wounds in what was considered a survivable crash. So his uh, friends and Dr. Snively got together and uh, uh, set up the uh, Snell Foundation to memorialize Pete and also to investigate uh, better head protection. Because I'm assuming that what they're thinking is that obviously this helmet was not adequate. Um, You're saying it was a survivable crash. So the helmet standards, I guess, needed to be addressed at that point. Uh, At that point, they didn't have any civilian uh, helmet standards in the United States. So you mean Snell was obviously before DOT? Oh, yeah. A number of years. The first Snell standard was in 1959. And the uh, DOT standard didn't take effect until 1974. So DOT, Department of Transportation. So if we now have the DOT, at least in the U.S., why do we need Snell still? Um, What uh, Snell does is we're uh, really trying to push the level of protection much higher than the uh, mandatory minimums uh, defined in DOT. So a good DOT helmet will save a rider a whole lot of grief. But if he's going to go to the trouble of wearing a helmet at all, he can do a whole lot better than uh, what DOT helmets will do. Do you know what the DOT method is? That it, it's sort of um, a, a, like a voluntary, not, not necessarily voluntary, but um, I guess they're doing their own testing with it? Yeah, it's uh, self-certification. That's the way they define it in the standard. And uh, 
what it sets up is that each manufacturer is required to uh, uh, do have a reasonable test program for his helmets and to maintain uh, records. Uh, DOT does do uh, spot checking uh, on an annual basis, about uh, 40 different models a year. And uh, they've been doing that all along. Uh, uh, on the whole, it's, it's uh, not too bad a program. Uh, we'd like to uh, complain about DOT for uh, many years, as long as I've been on board, but uh, actually it stacks up uh, decently, especially compared to say what's going on in Europe. Uh, how do you mean? Like DOT is better than what's happening in Europe? I believe so. The ECE uh, we're talking about. Exactly. Uh, ECE Regulation 22 uh, actually looks for less impact management uh, generally. And uh, their testing is, uh, their procedures are limited to the point that they only test the helmet at uh, specific spots so that if uh, you uh, sustain an impact, uh, even a few centimeters removed from one of these specific spots, uh, the helmet's liable to do even much less than uh, ECE is nominally calling out. Well, let's just look at the other certifying bodies that, that are around right now or that are popular. So we've got DOT, which is the U.S. Department of Transportation. We've got SNELL, um, which is you guys. We've got the ECE, which is the, um, the European standard. Um, we've yep. got um, SHARP, which is a, a newer, um, and I assume, I think what it is, SHARP is, is it's their Department of Transportation system for giving a star rating for helmets and, and the likelihood of their, um, their helmets protecting you in a serious crash. And then there's an Australian version as well, which I'm not familiar with. Does that about cover it? No, there's the uh, Japanese industrial standards. Uh, they actually look to be comparable to uh, DOT, um, maybe a little more stringent. And then there's uh, what FIM is doing, the uh, uh, Federation Internationale de Motocyclistes. Uh, they've uh, come up with their own set of requirements. It's kind of a super standard in that uh, they're uh, demanding uh, certification either to SNEL or uh, ECE, uh, Regulation 22, or the Japanese standards uh, as a prerequisite for qualification uh, to uh, uh, FIM. So after, after it has another certification that they're requiring, then they do further testing on that. Exactly. They've got their own uh, test protocols laid out. Uh, right now, I think they're being done at, uh, in Spain. Well, I want to I jump back here and, and, and let's talk about the helmet first. What's a helmet supposed to do for us? Uh, it actually gets between your head and the impact surface and uh, kind of moderates the transition of your head moving at an uh, impact velocity down to zero. When your head hits the road, uh, even in a helmet, uh, the one sure thing is it's not going to penetrate very far into the road surface. Uh, so you need that uh, moder that moderating influence, that uh, uh, survivable braking that's going to bring your head to a relatively gentle stop. So I assume abrasion as well and protects us from some sort of abrasion. And I, I guess as a side thing, it sort of, it protects us from the weather, bugs and, and flying debris, things like that. Oh, a helmet will do a whole lot more than, uh, than what we're looking for. You know, it's, uh, um, carries a face shield for you. Uh, if you've got communications gear, uh, it'll do that. Uh, 
uh, by the time it's all said and done, uh, there's a whole lot of uh, good things about helmets that uh, aren't really looked for in any of the uh, uh, current standards. The, the makeup of the helmet itself always surprises me because the material that's between your head and the outer shell is what? Between your head and the outer shell, it's mostly EPS these days. Uh, people have been experimenting with uh, other uh, impact managing liners, but uh, EPS has been around since the 1950s, really, and uh, it, it works a treat. Uh, it uh, compresses, uh, provides a, uh, a kind of a controlled braking force that slows your head to a relatively gentle stop. And uh, it uh, also gives you a pretty large ride down for its thickness. EPS has expanded uh, polystyrene. Uh, exactly. It, it stuns me, though, that, that we're still using this because, I don't know, it just seems like, you know, with all the advancements we've had in technology and all the other fields, this being so incredibly important, and we're still using something that's been around since, well, darn near the start of making helmets. Yeah. Uh, you know, it could be that if we, uh, if we knew more about human tolerances, uh, we'd uh, be able to come up with uh, maybe different materials. But uh, even though it's an old technology and very mature, it's still uh, one of the best that's uh, available. So with the, the Snell certification process, what is it um, that you're testing with Snell? Uh, we're actually testing just how well the uh, shell and the liner will uh, uh, moderate a severe impact against uh, uh, a number of shaped surfaces. So we'll smack the, we'll put a uh, metal head form into a helmet, uh, smack it at a measured velocity onto either a, a flat steel surface or a, uh, a hemisphere and then measure how uh, the, uh, uh, the stopping uh, of, the, uh, of the head form inside the helmet, making sure that the uh, forces on it and the uh, deceleration don't exceed certain levels. Walk me through this, uh, the apparatus, the, the method that you're using. Uh, well, we've got a, uh, essentially a, a, a drop tower that uh, guides a... Uh, helmet and a head form uh, down onto a, uh, uh, a shaped anvil at uh, a measured velocity. We'll drop it from a given height to get that velocity. And uh, uh, we've got an accelerometer inside the head form that's actually measuring the shock that is that comes through the helmet into the head form. And as long as that shock remains below a certain level, we think that the uh, helmet would protect an, uh, an accident, uh, a comparable impact out in the field. So, so you're, you're sort of stuffing a, a weight into this helmet, cranking it up high on, on this device, and then letting it drop down hard on an anvil, um, and then measuring yep. that, that the energy, I guess, is transferred um, between the outer, outside of the helmet into the inside of the helmet, which is our head. Right. Well, it's not exactly the energy. It's the, uh, the shock. The, uh, uh, essentially, we're looking at just how fast that uh, head form is being required to slow down inside the helmet. Oh, so it's all about momentum here is what we're talking about really is uh, you've got a head and a helmet moving at the same velocity. The helmet comes to a, an abrupt stop. Yeah, I see. Then it's, then it's how, you, how much you can slow that head down without making it stop as the helmet did. Precisely. 
Uh, you've got uh, essentially the thickness of the EPS liner in there to, uh, to get the job done. And uh, if you uh, run out of liner before your head runs out of velocity, you're in big trouble. All that uh, remaining momentum must get transferred in, uh, in an instant. And that sends the uh, deceleration through the roof. It also sends a big shock wave through uh, the soft tissue inside the skull, your brain. And uh, the distortions uh, that that produces in the brain are uh, likely to be highly injurious, if not lethal. So the brain is obviously very delicate. It's sitting there in our skull. And anytime it gets jarred in, in any direction, I mean, you know, you, we hear this from boxing, these, these extreme sports, those yep. fast jars, that, that's tearing tissue. That's, that's giving us brain damage. Um, exactly. And that's what we're trying to avoid here, obviously. That's it, exactly. So sure. wouldn't it make sense then to make the helmet, you know, like two and a half feet wide and <laughs> have all kinds of space in there? Uh. Certainly it would. And uh, what Snell has been doing really is just kind of testing the uh, uh, size, uh, the, the bulk of a helmet that uh, riders are willing to put up with. Because uh, if you're at speed, that uh, two foot wide uh, helmet is uh, going to create a whole lot of drag for you and make riding, uh, if not impossible, uh, at least very difficult. All right. So with all safety gear, we have to find things that are practical, I guess, you know, so you can, you can use it. If a seatbelt made it so you couldn't move and, and, and drive your vehicle, you wouldn't wear it, obviously. Um, so yeah. that, that makes sense. But there's also a weight consideration here, too. Like, I, I know the ECE ratings, they look at a, at a weight ratio because they're concerned about the weight of the helmet on your head, uh, I guess, maybe accelerating the damage or causing neck damage. Uh there's always been concern about neck damage, uh, but the fact of it is, is that uh, uh, helmets, if anything, seem to actually provide a measure of protection for the neck. It's not a whole lot, but studies out of Johns Hopkins have ascertained that uh, uh, riding bareheaded is much more likely to produce a, uh, or not much more, but slightly more likely to produce a neck injury than uh, riding with a helmet on. Now, why is that? I, I couldn't say. Uh, just the, uh, maybe the interaction between the head and the pavement uh, versus a, uh, a slick helmet shell in the pavement. But uh, whatever it is, uh, statistically, there are fewer neck injuries uh, uh, for guys wearing helmets than there are for uh, people crashing bareheaded. You mentioned now we, we've talked about the the impact testing that you're doing at Snell. Is there any rotational testing that this seems to be something that I'm seeing more of nowadays? We're talking about the fact that the head is rotating in the helmet uh, on impact, and that rotational movement is causing the uh, tearing in the brain. And there has been a lot of concern raised about it. The uh, difficulty is that no one's got really a handle on. Uh, just how much rotation uh, can be tolerated and uh, what the levels are. Uh, we've got a real good idea about uh, uh, just straight translational impact, you know, where uh, somebody goes head on into something without rotation. And uh, uh, most of the standards consider that technology. And they've been working very well. Uh, uh, it uh, all started with uh, uh, Dr. Hugh Cairns in England going into a, uh, a, a hospital ward in England and uh, noting that of all the uh, 
people who had been brought in for motorcycle crashes, the uh, ones who had helmets uh, were complaining about injuries to their extremities, and the ones who didn't have helmets all had head injuries. And that was the, the Lawrence of Arabia crash, uh, I think, 1935. Uh, that's, that's certainly one of them, but uh, I think Cairns was actually doing it in the early 40s. Mm. And, and that led to the development of, uh, I guess, the, the helmet and, and the requirement in many places for us to wear helmets. Uh, helmets and standards and also uh, really uh, the mechanism uh, of uh, injury that uh, the helmets were uh, kind of uh, thwarting to uh, protect you. What about the um, the face shield for testing? Is there any testing done on the face shield? Oh, we do a, a pellet penetration test for helmets that are equipped with face shields. We'll fire a uh, pellet from an air rifle at a measured velocity into the shield and require that it not uh, crack, uh, not allow the pellet to penetrate through into the interior of the helmet. But uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, standards in uh, Europe anyway, uh, ECE, uh, also uh, test optical qualities. Uh, our uh, philosophy at Snell anyway is that uh, not only are we ill-equipped to do that test, but a uh, rider can uh, tell very well whether he can see through the shield or not. And uh, he can tell us probably better than we could ever tell him. When it comes to choosing a helmet, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is a closed face helmet the safest helmet? Oh, definitely. Uh, That's been uh, since uh, Dr. Hurt did his study back in the 70s. The full face helmets provide better protection generally and also uh, provide a a strong measure of facial protection. Uh, We uh, are not as concerned about, you know, your teeth and jaw as uh, we are about the brain. But the fact of the matter is that it can make a big difference in the quality of life. We protect your your face and uh, avoid uh, an exhausting uh, series of trips to the dentist after a crash. Sure. And you're talking about Dr. Hurt. Um, that's the, the famous Hurt report that came that's out and t- told us a lot about motorcycling uh, accidents. Now, in that report, he, he talked about that um, many of the impacts were in, in particular areas. Oh, uh, yeah. And that's also studies out of uh, Germany and Europe uh, where they're actually mapping uh, where the impacts fell on the helmet. Uh, even Snively makes some references to it in uh, some of his writings, uh, uh, the hat band zone kind of all the way around the uh, uh, lower edge of the helmet. And what about the face shield itself? Like, is, is that chin protector important? Because that's what I remember from the Hurt Report. A lot of people take it on the chin. Uh, if not in the uh, immediate crash, then uh, shortly afterwards. Uh, We're not looking for as much impact management in the chin bar as we are uh, uh, structural stability and the fact that it provides a a relatively friendly surface for the uh, uh, chin to contact. Now, I'm assuming that this is where some of the rotational uh, um, damage can happen is in the chin, but but maybe with a round helmet, I, I guess it could happen anywhere. Uh, definitely anywhere. I uh, Most of the tests these days, including the one that uh, FIM is doing, actually are worried about uh, the rotational effects of impacts uh, uh, much higher on the helmet. 
Okay, so with this, what I don't understand about rotational, they, they, they're talking about the fact that when the, the head is rotated quickly that you can damage the brain. That makes sense. But they have systems now in some of the helmets where um, your head is allowed to rotate within the system, yet when you put the helmet on, it's tight on your face. How does that work? Um, well, the, uh, the rotational forces, the torques anyway, uh, get to be pretty high. Uh, so uh, uh, all the uh, rotational systems I've seen actually uh, are intended to allow a, uh, a measure of slip between uh, uh, somewhere between the uh, ex- you know the uh, surface of the shell and uh, uh, the crown of the head. Uh, there's a uh, uh, AGV had a not AGV but laser had a, a system where they're putting a uh, uh, a film on the outside shell would uh, break on impact and uh, allow the helmet to slip readily uh, along the impact surface. Uh, MIPS uh, puts a, a slip surface actually between the crown of the head and the uh, uh, lower uh, surface of the uh, impact liner. Uh, uh, 6D actually splits the uh, that. EPS liner into two parts and allows the slip between them. Um, wherever it is, uh, uh, they've uh, um, the whole business of it anyway is to allow the head to uh, uh, slip uh, rotationally uh, versus the outer edge of the helmet. Uh, the uh, question is uh, just how much slip is needed. One of the problems that we have here is uh, that the uh, uh, round head shape uh, is uh, such that uh, it's difficult to uh, stabilize the helmet anyhow. And to the point that we've got tests uh, where we're uh, just trying to see if the uh, chin strap will keep the helmet from rolling off a subject's head. Uh, and a lot of the testing, what they've actually tried to do is uh, uh, treat the uh, head form so that it sticks uh, much more firmly to the inside of the helmet. Uh, liner. Uh, that's the only way maybe they can see a difference in the uh, tests that they do. So how real uh, at this point or how accepted is the rotational damage idea? Uh, actually, uh, the uh, uh, rotational damage idea is getting a lot of attention, but uh, usually in uh, areas where there's a repeated impacts to the head, uh, where a succession of uh, uh, rotational impacts might cause damage to accumulate over time. Uh, a lot of the uh, attention that the uh, rotational people uh, have is is for concussion as opposed to uh, more serious brain injuries. The um, we, We've talked about the EBS liner, and I, and I just wanted to go through and talk about the helmet construction just for a minute. The, the helmet, um, the way I see it, is, is sort of made up of three sort of sections. Um, but can you just talk about how the, the makeup of the helmet? Sure. Uh, the uh, helmets that we see here, anyway, consist generally of a uh, shell, uh, uh, thin but very rigid. Uh, and inside that uh, shell is a, uh, a relatively thick impact liner. Uh, almost always EPS, and uh, within that is the uh, thin comfort liner, maybe some uh, paddings of uh, different thicknesses to uh, accommodate different uh, head circumferences. 
the helmet generally includes a, uh, a retention system as well, and maybe uh, cheek pads and uh, and the uh, such for the lower part of the face to give uh, a, a good, comfortable, firm fit down there. I think a lot of times when we look in a helmet, we see the the soft liner. It's easy to mistake that for being the protection system, but it's not. It's not. It's a fit system. Uh, it stabilizes the helmet on the head. It, it makes it bearable. Uh, I think uh, you know, naked uh, EPS next to your head uh, probably wouldn't be nearly as comfortable. <laughs> Certainly wouldn't absorb any perspiration. But uh, it uh, doesn't really have any effect at all in uh, managing an impact. Uh, that, uh, that soft comfort liner compresses almost instantly. And uh, the braking force that uh, you need to bring your head to a relatively gentle stop is all provided by that EPS uh, impact liner. Now, from what I understand, the the fit of the helmet is probably as important, maybe more important than the actual helmet itself. Can you walk us through how to fit a helmet, how it should fit? You're going in and trying a helmet on? Uh, Certainly, it should fit uh, firmly. Uh, uh, one of the uh, Arai techs, uh, Bruce Porter, uh, told me that uh, uh, in his travels, he had noted that uh, just about everybody he saw was wearing a helmet that was at least a size or two too large. Uh, it should fit firmly. Uh, you know, if you uh, shift the helmet on your head, maybe you should even feel the skin or scalp move a little bit. But uh, it should be uh, comfortable enough that you can wear it for hours at a time. Uh, a helmet that's uncomfortable is going to be left in the garage sooner or later. And, uh, you know, that's as much as I can tell anybody uh, about uh, fitting a helmet. It should be firm. It should be able to do it. The chin strap should not be able to uh, uh, shift it notably or especially roll it off with the chin strap done up correctly. And uh, you should be able to stand wearing it for uh, several hours at a time. Uh, there shouldn't be any hot spots. Uh, points, uh, you know, so uh, if someone's buying a helmet, I'd urge them to go try it on and wear it for five to 10 minutes or so just to uh, get a sense of uh, what it's going to do. And certainly do that before you put any money down. With the the Snell testing, would you tell anybody that's looking for a helmet, for a motorcycle helmet, that they should be looking for this Snell sticker? Uh, That's where I will start. I would uh, advise anyone looking for a helmet to uh, look at Snell certified full face helmets. And if none of those will do, then a Snell certified open face helmet. If none of those will do, then uh, step down to a a good DOT helmet from a reputable manufacturer. And uh, I'd start looking at full face there as well. Uh, The full face is uh, certainly worth it if uh, uh, a DOT full face won't do, then look for a DOT three-quarter helmet anyway. Uh, these uh, half helmets and shorty helmets uh, have been proven to uh, provide much less protection than even a good three-quarter helmet. There's all kinds of helmets out there that range from very low price and in a you know the hundred dollar range right on up into thousands of dollars or um, depending on what what, uh, what you're looking at. But in your experience of testing, does more money always buy you more protection? Uh, certainly not. Uh, the protection is probably the uh, least expensive thing in a good helmet. Uh, 
there's uh, uh, a lot of attention to uh, detail, uh, to comfort, to the appointments of a helmet. Uh, one of the things that uh, money might buy is if you've got a, uh, uh, a head size that uh, is at one end or the other of the uh, uh, range rather than uh, a size medium. Uh, there, uh, uh, the uh, higher shelf helmets are liable to provide you with something that will uh, fit uh, because uh, uh, the uh, best manufacturers will actually make uh, uh, five or even six uh, shelf sizes to accommodate a full size range. You know, so you'll have a choice of uh, uh, five different configurations within a single model line. Wow. Okay. So you're saying that because this works in a lot of things, you know, you go to buy a refrigerator and you see one for $200 and you see another one for $2,200. You figure, okay, the $2,200 fridge is going to be a better quality fridge. That's flawed. I know, but I mean, that's, that's a common thought process, but you're saying here, I can't just walk out and say, I'm going to spend $1,500 on a helmet because I know it's going to give me the best protection. That is not going to work. Uh, no. Uh, the, the fact is that, uh, uh, one Snell helmet is, uh, with it. Uh, almost as good as any other Snell helmet. You know, uh, imperceptible uh, uh, capabilities as far as protection is concerned. The uh, uh, fact is that, uh, well, I think the uh, approach is you can't be holier than the Pope if uh, Snell has certified it. There's no point in building it any tougher. Uh, same goes for DOT only or even ECE helmet. And uh, uh, the point after that is to provide uh, the kind of appointments that uh, that riders like. So uh, uh, a lot of them will uh, have uh, uh, some really uh, classy looking uh, design works on the uh, outside of the helmet. They'll have excellent system for uh, chin straps. Uh, they'll uh, provide, uh, say, a helmet that's sized for a, a particular individual's head size and shape rather than... Uh, had down a uh, much bigger helmet to uh, accommodate his particular head. But uh, the uh, protection itself, I think uh, the uh, standard that it's certified to is the best indicator of uh, just what that helmet's going to do in a crash. Because they're all using EPS. As you said, almost everyone is using EPS. I think I did read about some other uh, material that's being experimented with. But, but at this point, they're all using EPS. So, I mean, there's, there's only so much you're going to be able to do with, that, with the EPS to, I think, to, um, to get better protection. And as you're saying, the, the proof is in the test. Is, is it Snell certified? Yeah. Uh, and, and really what I'm saying is that uh, manufacturers... Uh, build to the standard. Uh, they're not going to uh, uh, provide uh, much more uh, impact management, Im impact protection, or test performance even than the standard is calling for. Uh, if uh, DOT has a standard and somebody's building to it, they will uh, uh, set up their production so that they can meet that test with maybe a margin, uh, slight margin above, so that. Uh, uh, any uh, variations in their uh, production won't uh, affect their certified status. But there's not much point to uh, uh, building a whole lot more protection than the standard demands. And uh, what we've seen here is that uh, uh, no matter what the price of the helmet, 
they meet the Snell standard with a modest margin of performance over and above, and then that's it, uh, no matter what the cost or uh, no matter who made it. But uh, uh, if anything, uh, if a manufacturer's got a, a new material or a new shell technology that allows him to uh, uh, produce a helmet that meets the standard that is slightly lighter, then he's going to go with it and, and uh, sell the public a lighter, sleeker, more appealing helmet rather than a thicker, uh, heavier, safer one. So I guess that's one thing you could look for, you know, if you're looking for helmets and if, if one's heavier than the other, if you're at a decision point, that could make a difference. Go with a lighter helmet. Uh, that's what people do. You know, that uh, uh, they're balancing uh, just how much weight they're going to carry on their heads versus what the likelihood of needing it in a crash is going to be. You know, they're going to be wearing that helmet many, many hours where they won't be crashing. And uh, that's a, a valid concern. Can I stand to wear this helmet for days at a time, hours at a time, and not just take it off and throw it away and ride home bareheaded? So as, a, as far as a consumer goes, we don't have to worry about what the helmet is made of on the outside, whether it's a polycarbonate shell or whether it's, it's some sort of laid up material. It, it really doesn't matter. What matters is the certification. I believe so. So uh, a good DOT helmet. Uh, from a reputable manufacturer, we say reputable because the manufacturers are doing their own testing, will uh, be as good as any other good DOT helmet from a reputable manufacturer. The decision point between them is uh, how well it fits your head and how well it meets your needs uh, as a motorcyclist. If anything, I would uh, recommend that somebody uh, go to the manufacturer or go to uh, a recognized outlet and try the helmet on before you do anything else. Buy your helmets new and, uh, and then uh, take the proper care of them and, and wear them. Uh, uh, replace them after uh, uh, five years of use. I was just going to ask you that. I was going to say, when is a helmet too old? Is, is five years the limit? That's, that's what we do. We wear them for five years and then call it quits? Well, our recommendation is five years. It's based on uh, testing that Snively did uh, with... Uh, helmets donated by retiring CHP officers. Uh, he found that uh, some of the helmets as old as 12 years performed like new when he uh, did the testing, but others that looked just as good were completely useless, at least as protection. And uh, uh, based on his findings, he suggested that maybe after five years, he could no longer be confident that a helmet would protect. Mm. So do you know what breaks down uh, over those four, five years? Like what, what was found? What was the, the limiting factors? Uh, the limiting factors seem to be uh, damage just to the EPS. Mm. Uh, so damage. So in other words, they, they've been dropped while in use. Uh, not even dropped, but uh, maybe parked on a mirror while uh, somebody was chatting uh, uh, to somebody else or uh, you know, maybe just the... Uh, accumulated abuse over uh, a five-year period, over a 10 or 12-year period even. The uh, fact is that the Snell standard and all the certification programs work because uh, the helmets leaving the factory are virtually identical. But uh, once they get into the field and uh, start to be worn by a single person, all those helmets start to become different. And uh, ultimately after five years of use, Snively felt he could no longer predict just how well any particular helmet might do. 
and you could not see the difference without uh, maybe disassembling the helmet. And uh, disassembling the helmet is as damaging as crashing in it. If I have my helmet on my motorcycle, set it on the seat, it rolls off and smacks on the ground, is it still good? I believe so. Uh, one or two smacks is not going to do anything uh, perceptible. We would never see the difference here in a test. Uh, if you've got a long history of smacks, say uh, over five years or more, uh, who knows? It could They could add up. Uh, the damage seems to be cumulative. So uh, with enough smacks, that helmet will no longer do what you need it to do if you crash in it. Okay, because a lot of people say that one little bump and the helmet is garbage at that point. Um, so that's not... And that's not true. Not necessarily the case. No, not at all. Uh, uh, our advice has been if the helmet rolls off the table, you should uh, resolve to treat it better in the future, but uh, it's probably as good as it was before it rolled off the table. It's the head inside the helmet that actually does the damage. That's why we're so confident about... Uh, accidental falls of a helmet onto the ground. There's no head inside the helmet, so there's no uh, massive object to compress the uh, EPS. So uh, 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 you're probably home free. But if your head's inside the helmet and uh, you take a, a, a smack, at least a smack big enough to know that you've been hit, uh, then uh, maybe it is start time to start thinking about replacing it. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. And you mentioned cumulative damage. So when you're talking about hanging it on the mirror, which a lot of people, including myself, have a terrible habit of doing, that hanging on the mirror that, that just keeps pushing in the EPS, and the EPS does not rebound. Uh, never. It doesn't come back. In fact, that's how it protects. It takes damage. Uh, essentially, it, it's taking the damage that your head doesn't have to take. Right. So it's not like, um, it's not like your knee pads or your elbow pads or shoulder pads or something like that, where you can squish them in and they pop back out. EPS, once it goes in, that's it. So that's one, that's a little bit of distance, I guess you've lost a little bit of damping you've lost. Yeah. Uh, and the knee pads, uh, shoulder pads, all of that work because, uh, uh, the, uh, body parts behind it are much tougher than the brain is. Uh, so that the uh, shock wave uh, spreading through them is not going to do any kind of any anywhere near the damage that a, uh, uh, a shock to your head will. You know, you might get a little bruising, but you can recover from that pretty easily. Mm -hmm. uh, take a uh, shot to your head and uh, uh, a brain bruise or a brain bleed up there. Uh, that's that's serious damage, and uh, if it doesn't kill you outright, uh, it's it's going to hurt. So what about um, things that people do to their helmets? I was curious because it often says don't put a sticker on the helmet, yet the, the Snell sticker will be on the back of the helmet. The DOT sticker will be on the back of the helmet. I'm not sure where they're going with this. Don't And, and some people even paint the helmets. What about those modifications? We generally recommend that people, you know, talk contact a manufacturer quite likely these days that uh, uh, adhesive stickers on the uh, outside of the helmet won't do uh, any serious damage over time. Uh, painting is tricky because a lot of the solvents and paints will actually attack an EPS liner. But uh, a vinyl wrap, as nearly as I can tell, is uh, maybe a safe way to uh, customize a particular helmet. Uh, our advice is generally, you know, buy the helmet uh, exactly as you want it so they won't have to do any modifications afterwards. The fact is that uh, when people uh, 
uh, wear something on their heads, especially. Uh, they want it to reflect their individuality. So, uh, yeah, they're going to do stuff to it. Is there anything else you think we should know about helmets and about Snell? Well, uh, Snell is strictly voluntary. Uh, nobody has to buy a Snell helmet. Nobody has to build a Snell helmet. The uh, reason that uh, manufacturers will build Snell helmets is because there's a number of motorcyclists who will look for our certification. And it's those guys who are keeping us alive. If uh, the uh, motorcycling public stops buying Snell, uh, the manufacturers will avoid us after that. Uh, nobody comes to us because we're nice guys. And uh, uh, so uh, my uh, request to uh, the motorcycling public is to, you know, while they're taking care of their heads, consider that uh, every uh, Snell helmet that's sold is a, uh, a vote for Snell and a continuing uh, referendum. And uh, when that voting stops or turns against us, uh, we'll dry up and blow away. Yeah, and it makes sense to to keep the uh, the body working that's, that's testing the helmets and making sure that we're as safe as we possibly can be. Uh, certainly hope so. Uh, we're certainly uh, trying to look out for uh, especially the motorcycling public, uh, but uh, certainly uh, we're counting on the motorcycling public to support us, and uh, we're aware that uh, if uh, we start to fall down on our mission here, that... Uh, and the public turns against us, it, it's all over for Snell. Well, Ed, thank you very much for all your help with this. this. is a lot of great information here. Really appreciate it. Ed, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Ed Becker. He is the executive director and the chief engineer at the Snell Foundation. And if you'd like more information about what they're doing, their website is smf.org. And of course, we'll have that link to the Snell Foundation in our show notes for this episode. We're going to take a two-minute break to thank two sponsors that helped make this episode possible. Stay with us because when we come back, we've got some great information on choosing a helmet and the all-important way of telling if your helmet actually fits. This should keep you out of that 25% of motorcyclists that are wearing the incorrect size of helmet. Stay with us. Red Rock Garage is a coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. It's a motorcycle destination in British Columbia, located in the heart of what's called Beaverdale, and that's on Highway 33. It's in southern British Columbia, Canada, just north of Washington State. If you're doing the the Alaska to Ushuaia trip, uh, or even just to Alaska and back, you should definitely make this slight detour to get to the Red Rock Garage. They not only have fuel, and of course, great coffee, they have camping and they have a B&B and, and some of the most spectacular riding anywhere by their account. But um, it's uh, Southern British Columbia and you cannot go wrong riding in this area. Oh, and check out the link on their website that says Red Rock Retreat. That looks pretty cool, especially if you're traveling with some other people. It is the Red Rock Garage in Beaverdale, British Columbia on Highway 33. Uh, find out more at their website, redrockgarage.ca. And make sure anytime you drop by or you're talking to them, emailing, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, redrockgarage.ca. 
Well, we're in Ontario, Canada for the next couple of months. And what I get excited about here is the trails. There's sort of endless ATV trails to explore that sort of lead deep into the wilderness and, and eventually some small towns. And I just love how challenging these trails are. There's so much diversity in the trail condition. Like, like one minute it's deep sand and then it's rocks and, and then fairly frequently it's deep water and then mud, rough mud, like with rocks in there. It's through this rough terrain on my adventure bike, which is kind of by a lot of people's standards, too big for playing in these type of conditions. But my feet are practically locked into place on my IMS foot pegs. They don't clog up with mud. I'm using the IMS core pegs right now and staying on my bike is never an issue. That connection between my feet and my bike that IMS provides, it's a difference between me riding or not riding these trails. Really, that's what it comes down to. IMS Products has a peg for you from their complete line of adventure motorcycle pegs. Drop them a note, look them up at imsproducts.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, remember, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. But they've got everything from a very large, wide peg down to the more narrow rally pegs that I'm using. Um, check them out, imsproducts.com. <laughs> When it comes to buying a new helmet, you'll probably find yourself with a lot of questions because buying a helmet is kind of like shopping for clothing in a way. We all have different shapes and sizes. We like different things. But then on top of that, helmets are made for different styles of riding and they're all different. So once you've decided on the certification level you'd like your helmet to have, the next thing you're going to have to do is start narrowing the choice down by figuring out what else is important to you in a helmet. And then finally, and of the utmost importance, you need to know how to tell if the helmet fits you correctly. And this is critical. So to dive into all this, we called our friend Clinton Smout. You should know him from our Rider Skills segment. Clinton runs Smart Adventures at the Horseshoe Resort in Ontario, Canada, which sees about 4,000 people a year. And at Smart Adventures, every lesson begins with the fitting of the helmet. Anyway, Clinton's going to run us through some helmet buying tips from a pro and then helmet fitting. Now, make sure you listen to the whole thing here because the helmet fitting may be more important than what helmet you buy. Because if it doesn't fit right, it just isn't going to do the job. Clinton, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Great to hear from you. What, what's happening at your, uh, your place today? Well, we have a day off Wednesday, so I'm going riding. What do you, what do you mean day off? Is, that, is it actually a thing where you call it day off Wednesday? Oh, yeah. We train every weekend, of course. That's when people are available. Oh, right. And we do our adventure bike courses Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday. And we didn't have any adventure bike people today. So I taught uh, ATVs and dirt bikes and trials yesterday. So today is a day off just to go have fun. Well, as you know, we're talking about helmets today, um, and I want to talk to you about helmet fitting. But before we yes. get to that, because you deal so much, because your life is riding motorcycles and, and quite a few different motorcycles, obviously, what type of helmets do you recommend? If somebody comes to you and says, Clinton, you know, I'm, I'm going to get into adventure riding, what should I be looking at? Should I be looking at a flip-up helmet? Should I be looking at a, at a, a full-face helmet? Um, what, what's and, and with a visor or without, what do you recommend? A full-face for sure. Adventure helmet, whether you get kind of the non-flip up or flip up, I believe it should be full face. I've ruined many, many helmets in the crash that happens fast. Uh, the last one I remember was in Alberta and I was 
following a guy who was a much better rider than I was. So, of course, my male eagle said, well, I can keep up with him. And we were doing about 50 miles an hour on an ATV trail that had every now and then was a puddle you'd go through. And I hit one that was clay-based. And all of a sudden, I was riding standing up. And the next minute, my bike was sliding out under me when I lost the front end. And uh, I hit the ground with my the front chin part of my helmet. I never even got my hands up as instinctively you'll fall. You put your hands up, mm-hmm. never even got them up. So if I'd had an open face, you know, I'm, I'm not a very good looking guy, but, but I would have been a b- lot uglier. <laughs> and the front of that awry helmet was just all scratched up from scraping along this gravel trail for a long way until I came to a stop. Well, you know, so, that, that's interesting because in the hurt report, the, the, the hurt report that most of us have heard of on motorcycling, yes. that study that was done on, on motorcycle crashes, uh, particularly fatal crashes, the, one of the, the, the highest impact point was that side chin, wasn't it, on the helmet? Yes, it was. And for the same reason being, a lot of our crashes are lack of traction on the front wheel, uh, cornering aggressively, hitting some loose something, sand or leaves on a road, wet paint, uh, grass clippings. And the front end goes out so quick, the side of our head or helmet impacts the ground. So I'm, I'm a, even if I lived in a state where helmet laws were open and you didn't have to wear it, I've crashed so many times because I'm not a very good rider. Um, I go through lots of helmets. And the staff mock me because I have about 12 different helmets that I wear regularly, depending on what I'm going to ride, what I'm going to do. That awry helmet that you went down in, you skidded along the, the gravel. Did you throw it out afterwards? Was Absolutely. It's a garbage Cut helmet. The strap off. Now, I had a week of riding it. We were actually marshals at a GS challenge and a fellow marshal had lost his phone. And six days later, we were in the same area. So I volunteered to go with him because I don't think you should do hard trails by yourself. And that's when I crashed. So I had to ride the rest of the week with that helmet. But it wasn't a temple area blow. It was right at the chin. So I wasn't as worried about its integrity, but it looked like hell. Mm. I'm, I'm your marshal from Canada. I must have got some strange looks. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, going on with a helmet recommendation, what, what about a visor? Um, I think it serves three purposes. One, it's a sunshade, just like a visor you would pull down in your car. The peak of the helmet that sticks out over the front, um, it also will keep branches, <clears throat> excuse me, off your face. So if we're going through a trail, there's overgrown branches. Don't take your hand off the bar, relinquishing partial control. Just dip your head for a millisecond, just as you're about to get the branch in the face, and then lift your chin back up, and the branch, the peak is taking care of that branch. Mm, that's a very Maybe. good point. Yeah, that's something I, I do automatically. I didn't never even thought about it, but without yeah. that visor, it's, it could very well just snap down to your neck and then drag across yeah. your neck. 
and we're talking about very thin branches. You don't want to try that with a six inch oak <laughs> limb. <laughs> it's be a different result. Make it ugly. Um, and the third one, well, just to finish that train of thought, um, the visor helps keep your face out of the dirt if you plant right into the soft soil because it sticks out further. It mm-hmm. may well break, but it's done its job. It's kept your face and windshield, windscreen out of the abrasive dirt and sand. So all my adventure bike helmets have a peak. The one thing you have to watch, if you have a motocross helmet, it obviously has a peak as well. But the peak is solid from the tip all the way back to where it joins the helmet. So what happens on the highway or even in a trail at speeds of, you know, 40 miles an hour and up, unless you keep your chin tilted down, the airflow will hit that visor like a wing on an airplane and it will tilt your head up. So you have very good vision looking skyward. Yeah, and the big problem with that is if you get into buffeting wind, which you're going to, then it's shaking your head all around. Yeah, so a true adventure bike helmet will have a gap in the visor where it joins the helmet. Uh, The Arise I use, it's called the XD4. I think I've had about eight of them over the years. I just got a new one about two weeks ago. And uh, as you say, on the highway, I, if I'm late for work, I take the highway. And if I have time, I take trails just so I keep fresh in my riding. And it gives me a chance to look what trees down, what trail is muddy. So later on, when I'm taking customers, I've, always, I've already kind of pre-rolled some of it. But on the highway days, I wear the adventure bike helmet all the time. And I don't get that wind buffeting because it's properly designed peak. How about um, the windscreen itself? Do you have any um, thoughts on that? Yeah, I love having one. Cold days, raining. Um, I'll sometimes wear goggles that go over my glasses if I'm going to be off-road all day long. If you're riding a lot of off-road, goggles are better than a windscreen in my opinion. Because if you're traveling, depending on the temperature and the weather and your speed, you may have to lift your visor in your adventure helmet or any helmet up and down many, many times. That means your left hand is off the bar for a couple of seconds many times. Riding with one hand in loose terrain could prove to be very exciting. So goggles... If they're properly fitted and good quality, they're not going to fog up as long as you're moving and you don't have to take your hand off to uh, lift the visor up and down if you're wearing goggles. And the reason you're lifting the visor up and down is because the visor is starting to fog. You're getting hot. Exactly. Exactly. You're too hot and then you get going too fast. Your eyes are watering if you don't have eye protection. And that's a real dumb idea, riding with a naked eyeball. Mm. In many states in the U.S. where you're allowed to ride without a helmet, you still must have um, eye protection on. Mm, interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I just yeah. saw somebody riding uh, yesterday going by without eye protection. To me, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, all it takes is a mosquito uh, in your eye, which is, it's going to happen for sure. 
June bug knock you off the bike almost. <laughs> mm, that's, that's true. Uh, now, you, you were talking about fogging with the goggles. Not all goggles or not all helmets will fit goggles. Exactly. So that's what I try on. That's why I love this XD4 from Mirai. All my goggles fit. And I have some that are they're pretty big goggle because I ever wear glasses. And if I don't want to crash more than I normally do, I have to have my glasses on. Although the staff bought me a pair of goggles. They're from the States. They're called Pro View. They're about eight years old now. But they put the person's prescription right in the goggles so you don't have to wear glasses. Mm. And you, you, that's your regular goggles? No, I don't wear them that much because when I'm teaching, I take the goggles off. I can't see the students. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one of the downsides of a yeah. great little invention. But, but if you just start riding by yourself, it'd be perfect. Absolutely. I use them all the time. They're awesome. Mm. Let's talk about venting and, and um, maybe chin strap. But, but venting, what's your thoughts on venting? Yeah, there's different brands, of course. If I was going to Nevada, Las Vegas area, riding in the desert, I have one helmet. It's a climb. I'm not sure the model, but there's three vents in the kind of top of the helmet that catches airflow. So it's, I would never ride it snowmobiling or spring and fall in Canada because you'd freeze. There is a little helmet sock that you wear on top of your head. Looks like a yarmulke, but uh, it's still cold. So, um, I'm spoiled. I have a lot of different helmets, but I ride six days a week, sometimes seven. So I can pick and choose where I'm going to go, what I'm doing and put the helmet that masks. So if it was really hot weather, I would take this climb helmet that's got huge venting. But most helmets, my Arise, for instance, have a chin vent I can open and close and two vents, one at the back and one at the top of the head. It allows airflow through and out the back. They're exhaust vents, really. I also look for a helmet that has a removable washable liner. Uh, but what I did find out, don't put that liner in the dryer. Let it air dry because it won't fit properly afterwards. Mm, that's a good tip. So for venting, it's going to matter where you're riding. If you're riding somewhere cool, you might not want much venting. It's something you want to look at with a helmet. Yes, and you want it closed when it's cold. <laughs> Chin strap latch. There, there's um, there's some uh, different latches out there now. Um, that used to be the the one that that typical style that you sort of feed through and, and uh, yeah. the, the metal clasp. But now they've got some that actually snap together. What what do you think of these new models? Yeah, I have some trials helmets. They're very minimalistic, very small, and you know you're going ten miles an hour tops in a trials on a trials bike just putting around so i don't wear a full face on those and they have those little clippy ones you just push a clip snaps um, together yeah snell doesn't approve them a snell rating and that's that memorial foundation snell was a race car driver in the late 60s died so when his helmet cracked in half causing his death or leading to it his buddies put money together and they have the Snell Memorial Foundation helmet testing. Rated very well. And there's lots of European classifications. Canada, we don't have one. We used to have CSA, 
And now we just adopted the American DOT, Department of Transport. But uh, some countries or helmet testing standards don't accept the little clips. They believe the D-ring system is better. Um, For our business, we just bought uh, 80 shark helmets and they all have D-ring. We still have 99% of my helmets have D-ring. Okay. Um, the, the, the one thing I was going to mention for, for buying them, uh, that I've run into is if, if you like comms, if you have speakers in your helmets, you want to make sure that the helmet actually takes them. Cause not all helmets do. I was sort of surprised to find that. Yeah, that's true. Um, I have a couple helmets that are Schubert. Uh, I have a yellow Schubert flip up style helmet called the C3 and it has a communication package, battery help. You can, I think radio stations, you can Bluetooth to the sound system on my BMW. Um, I've never used that sound system. I hear enough voices in my head. I don't really want to talk to you when we're riding. Well, now to the to the big one, what I, th- I consider the big controversy, because some people will vehemently oppose or, or support the thought of a flip-up helmet. I know you use a flip-up helmet, but you're using it for instruction. I do, because... Um, we tell our instructors, if you're wearing full face, take it off when you're teaching. It's like talking with your hand over your mouth. People can't really see your your face. Uh, we also don't allow instructors to teach with mere sunglasses on. We think it's rude. Yeah. If you have a customer, they should see your eyes. Yeah, definitely. So it's the same with a helmet. It's just rude. But for me, it's a pain in the butt every five minutes when I want to coach or tell a story or a joke or something, I have to take my helmet off. So the flip up to me works great for teaching. And I also have an open face awry helmet with a peak and a visor, but the whole face chin area is open. And that's a teaching helmet. And I use it if I'm riding uh, at bike shows, I ride these little demonstrations with a microphone which is patched to speakers and it just works really well with this open face awry helmet i have but the flip up the controversy is is it as safe as a full face well the schubert is the only one that i know of that snell would stand and the shark shark has a rotating flip up where the whole front of the helmet goes back and clicks into and uh, police departments are using them in Toronto. If you were going to head off on a trip right now, say, you know, for a couple of months or, or maybe a year, what would you take? A flip up or? No, my full face awry. Um, maybe it's just my prejudice, but I believe that that's a little safer only because sometimes, you know, I'm, I'll flip up as I'm riding. So there's a percentage of my riding where I could become much uglier when I fall because you don't usually have time as the ground is approaching to pull the flip up down into the full face position. Mm. Whereas my awry full face, um, I don't have any time. But if I'm not teaching, I wouldn't wear my flip up out on the highway. There's also the weight consideration, isn't there? Um, especially when you look at European standards, which takes weight more into consideration than um, than puncture resistance, etc. Uh, that adds weight to the helmet. 
it does a little bit. That mechanism of the latch system has to be a bit heavier adding that. Do you have a color of helmet that you prefer? Yeah, I think color is very important for conspicuity. I have four helmets that are this really bright yellow that road signs are painted. And experts say that bright, bright yellow of a cautionary sign for highways is the most discernible color that our eye is attracted to. So that's where I I ride with yellow. And many people, um, often I'm the sweep rider in a big group or the lead rider. And the person at the total other end of the group can see me and know that they can continue when they see my yellow awry come around the corner. They know that the whole group is there. So it is, I think, yellow adds a little bit of conspicuity. Uh, Some people say it's cooler than a dark helmet. Uh, That's nonsense. A helmet is so thick with the outer layer, the impact liner, then the comfort liner. Heat does not transfer through any more with a bright white helmet than a black helmet. It's just the touch exterior that would attract more heat with a darker color. I'm just wondering now what color are you going to go to after everybody switches to the bright green helmet? (laughs) (laughs) What color are you going to? You're going to have to go to black after that to stand out. Yeah, I don't think people will. (laughs) My brother, for instance, I bought five uh, fluorescent yellow BMW jackets on a clearance sale and I gave them out to staff and I gave one to my brother for Christmas. This is like a $500 jacket. I think I got them for $100. So I thought, well, that'll be a nice present. He rides a gold wing. And he opens it up. And not one to mince words, he said, I wouldn't be caught dead in that. <laughs> I'm going, that's the point, you moron. <laughs> People <laughs> will right. see you. He doesn't want to be seen that much. So pride and fashion have a real determination in our purchase decisions. But for me, (laughs) I want bright, loud colors. I don't care if people have to pull over and throw up after they see me. I just want them to see me. Yes. And and that is the most common thing that that drivers say when they hit a motorcyclist is that they didn't see the bike. So I guess anything we can do to, to help with that would certainly help. Okay, so now for the the very important thing of fitting a helmet, and this is something that you you have to spend a few minutes doing. As, as a matter of fact, before we start this, I was going to mention the Mayo Clinic has done some research, uh, a bunch of research on helmet fitting, and they run a, a program on fitting helmets, fo- focused mainly on uh, sports. Um, but uh, all helmets, you know, do the same or have the same sort of idea to to protect your brain. And they say that um, the difference between wearing uh, a, a properly fitting helmet and an improper fitting helmet is the difference of about 42% reduction in concussion, uh, in chance of concussion. So wow. as, as most places will say, um, helmet fitting is super important. It's not just a matter of getting a helmet and you can have a great helmet and it's loose on your head. It's worse than a, a poor quality helmet that's fit properly. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, On a trip, I was lucky enough to go to Africa where the bikes provided you take your own gear. And I knew a few of the participants, but there was one couple, big guy, brand new helmet, very slight, petite passenger. 
And I said to her, Megan, is that his old helmet? Because it was a couple years older. And she goes, yes. And so I said to the guy, let's go buy her a proper sized helmet. That is way too big. If she held the chin piece of the helmet, she could rotate her helmet left her head inside the helmet left and right by three inches each mm. way. I said, mm. not only is it a little too big, it's way too big. No, no, that's a good helmet. It's fine. Well, of the 14 people on the trip, they had a horrific accident. Um, he was in the wrong side of the road in Namibia and hit another motorcycle. And the subsequent um, trebuchet of the passenger over the bike in the impact, she hit the ground head first and had a massive concussion, is suffered over a year with that concussion. And I attribute it to that moron not buying a proper fitting helmet for his passenger. Let's go through this one step at a time here, the, the how yeah. to fit your helmet. So um, the first thing you have to do when you're fitting a helmet is determine size. How do you do that? Uh, with a tape measure. If you put a baseball cap on, the liner of the baseball cap is just above your ears. That's where your head should be measured to get a proper size, you know, five and one eighth, whatever it is, seven and a half. So it's above your ears, just above your eyes. So on the forehead, and then you go around. Okay. So now you've got your, your actual size. Now what's next? Well, most manufacturers, good manufacturers, where you're going to spend some money on the helmet, they will provide more than one shape. So believe it or not, Arise testing feels that most North Americans are in what they call an intermediate oval-sized cranium. Our heads are intermediate ovals. And a lot of Asian countries selling helmets, they may have more of a round oval shape. And they actually market different helmet shapes to, to meet the helm head size of different places. So a quantum X array is thought to be this round oval shape. The Signet X is a fairly new one they've brought out. It's a long oval. Now, now this is interesting, the, the, the fact that everyone has, or many people have different head shapes, and that makes a big difference because this is the point where people will get a helmet and, and think that it fits when it doesn't fit. Because if you have a, a long oval, in other words, your head is, is longer front to back and it is size to side, and you put on a round helmet, it will be tight at the front and back, and you'll think, okay, it feels fairly snug there. But side to side, you've got all kinds of gap. Exactly. And your head's going to move around in a crash on that. And that's really asking for more concussion and injury. So how do you figure out your head shape? Uh, that takes a professional, I say. So it's important, I think, for a professional at a dealership who's really been trained on how to fit a helmet. Um, I like going to at the manufacturer dealer shows. There's usually different helmet manufacturers there with booths. So Arai will have a whole bunch of helmets on display and you can try the different ones on. They'll have a tape measure there around the neck of every person in the booth who works there, kind of like a 
a tailor would have that long tape measure and they'll tell you what size and shape you are so you can get a proper fit. Um, the terrible thing about our internet economy is people are buying parts for their bikes, riding gear, including helmets online. And it's very hard to return when it doesn't fit properly. So a lot of people will just wear the bad fitting helmet because they saved a bit of money buying it online rather than going to an actual retailer, to a dealership. So I'm a big advocate of, of go get it properly measured in shape to fit your head. And then don't lend your helmet. The comfort liner will be tight around the cheeks, or it should be, when you get it. That conforms to your jaw face shape. And nothing worse than lending a helmet and getting it back some big jawed guy, and it doesn't fit properly after that. Mm -hmm. So I don't lend out my own helmets. We provide a helmet for our customers, and we replace them every two years. Just cut the straps off and dispose of them properly because I don't want somebody to find them and say, hey, look at this, it's a nice helmet. Yeah, I was going to mention that because I have a note here that when you said cutting the straps off, I just wanted to talk about that. You're cutting them off so no one else can pick them up and use them. Absolutely. And when you know they've been damaged or they're worn out. Yeah. Yeah. So we've we've measured our head. We got we've chose the right size helmet. We we find it found out you know what whether we have a round or intermediate oval, whatever shape our head is, and we think we've got a helmet that's going to fit. So now you put it on. How do you know how tight is enough? Quite often you'll see people with loose helmets, other people with very tight helmets. Where's the in between? Where's the correct fit? Well, some people just by their head shape, they struggle to get the helmet on around their cheekbones. And they think, oh, I need a bigger size because of that. That's where a professional fitting you will tell you, no, work it, squeeze it over your cheeks. The temple area, the crown of the head is where the important fit is critical. So even though it may be hard to get on over your cheek and your ears, um, work with that. Don't have too large a helmet because... Um, if it's not fitting around the top of the head where the brain is properly, you know, why bother wearing it? Keeps the bugs off you, but it may not protect you as well as it could in a crash. Mm -hmm. And the and the correct way to put a helmet on is to grab the chin straps and pull the helmet out slightly as you put it over your head. Is, is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So I mean, that is to clear your 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 face, and that is to allow you to wear a helmet that fits you properly. Yeah, it, by design, there's a little flex there. I don't know, quarter inch on each side, maybe, mm -hmm. that you can pull outwards, left and right, and that helps it over. Now, when you hold your helmet with your hands, when it's on your head and you move it around, what sort of movement are you looking for in relationship to the skin and your in your head? Yeah, that's one of the good tests we um, instruct our instructors, our new instructors. They know how to put their helmet on, but... You kind of look at a person's head and I have a really good guess if they're a medium or a large or an extra large. And then we try it. We provide a helmet liner. It's like what a chef would wear just to protect any transference of something that might be in someone's hair that we don't want to spread to someone else. And then we wash those every, every day. And once it's on, we hold the chin area and ask the customer to move their head 
left and right, and then move their chin up and down. And if there's too much movement, we go down a size. And if the person says, no, it's really pressing in at the temple area, there's a pressure point, then we go up a size. So we don't want it. We don't want it too tight. Um, that can be another mistake because that can create headaches. Absolutely. People complain of um, from swim goggles or goggles. Anybody's wearing headwear can run into problems with headaches from it. I think it's the Mayo Clinic that recommends that the, the prevention for that sort of thing is one sizing it properly to begin with. The other one would be taking breaks. You know, taking your helmet off, etc. And and a new helmet tends to do that more than. I mean, you can get your new helmet. It tends to be a little tighter when you first get it. Absolutely. And then the comfort liner will mold to your head shape. So a huge haircut going from almost a brush cut to a big hair, head of hair, that affects your helmet fit. Mm. But I agree. That's why we don't lend out your helmet. Now, can you change this, uh, the fit of your helmet with um, with any sort of padding? I think it's, is it a rye that, that has different padding kits that they yes. supply to you? It does. Now you can't, if you buy an extra small and you find out that you're a triple extra large, you can't buy <laughs> the inner replaceable liner to fit. Because, But you could probably go from a medium to a large with different cheek pads. But it's best to check at the dealer level or the manufacturer level. Go on the internet and research it. Um, but I, as I say, I'm replacing the inner liner and the pads of a helmet. I washed it and put it in the dryer and it just doesn't fit properly. It shrunk. So I've, I've got it on order now for one of my arrives. Um, any other thoughts with uh, helmet fitting? Um other than what we do for men is we give the customer one size larger than they really need. Because you know what's going to happen, Jim. They'll be practicing. We'll congratulate them. We'll say, Jack, that was a fantastic stop. Good job, buddy. And then the head swells and then it fits properly. <laughs> so for men, they need a you, you know, know I I'm surprised that they don't make helmets more like they do with travel bags. You know, you can unzip the zipper and it sort of pleats out and gets a little bit bigger. That'd be perfect for that. <laughs> yeah. <It's> a tough design. <laughs> Clinton, thank you very much. I, I got to let you go because you got to get out there and ride. I don't, I don't want to waste That's your right. day. So. Guys are actually waiting for me. Get okay. Thanks. Enjoy Jim. the sunshine. Thank you very much. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye now. That was Clinton Smout from Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. Clinton teaches motorcycle, ATV, trials riding, and snowmobiling in the wintertime at a first-class venue. You can find out more about what he does at smartadventures.ca. Hey, just a quick note for those of you near Washington for July 18 to 21st, this 18 to 21st coming right up at Ferry County Fairgrounds in Republic, Washington. It's the 47th BMW Cascade County Rendezvous and Adventure Rally. It's a whole weekend of fun, including some door prizes and seminars. You pre-register by July 14th and it only costs 60 bucks, $65 at the gate. They also have an optional four-hour uh, off-road training course scheduled for the Friday, so that could be good. It's always worthwhile to grab yourself some training whenever you can. Free maps for on-road and GS rides and free GPS tracks. The camping is free, and the organizer for it is our friend David from Best. 
best rest. So you can just go to cyclepump.com and click on the best rest adventures link for 47th Cascade County Rendezvous and Adventure Rally. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up this episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it and really we hope you've learned something and maybe a lot of things about helmets maybe it's time to get out there and shop for a new one for yourself anyway we got a whole bunch of other shows to listen to other episodes to listen to at our website adventureriderradio.com we also have our other show raw that comes out once a month you need to subscribe to that show separately drop by our website and have a look at that as well just click on the raw button and look i know we have some ads in this show but the show is built on a model of some advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work we need your support drop by our website adventureriderradio.com and click on support we'd love to get you onto our patron supporters but there's a bunch of different options there anyway thanks for listening my name is jim martin now it's time to get out there and ride your bike see you next week this is bill Kanachi, and you're listening to adventure rider radio (laughs) 